0: Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we're offering three conversations from episode 58, the beginning of our year-end wrap-up with Jorn, Louise, and me. Plus, from our vault, two conversations from season three, episode 20, Jorn's first episode as co-host. This conversation starts with Louise Campbell and Jorn Schottenberg continuing to discuss some of the benefits of scan in terms of how practitioners have come to use data more appropriately with the new iterations of the product. As Louise points out, older machines track kilopascals only, which could help Identify liver disease, but not support liver health quite very much. Newer machines measure liver stiffness, which is more helpful when working with patients on their liver health. Yorn asks why test when virtually everyone with liver disease has an apple at least, and then answers his own question. It offers inexpensive therapy if it can produce better patient education and self-care. Louise mentions that in Australia, where she was for this episode, people even forget the role that liver plays in metabolism. This is a country where the aboriginal populations have exceptional documentation about liver disease and educational tools to match, both of which Louise describes in some detail. Yorn speculates that use of scan in the German system will continue need to be limited due to low levels of reimbursement as an ultrasound test. Unless there's a patient copay, Louise speculates that costs for scan itself will come down using her own experience in the UK to prove that point. The rest of the conversation stems from a question I ask about how digital tools will integrate with fiber scan or other scanning methods over time. Louise believes they can work together in driving patient motivation, but from a different system and viewpoint, Juren suggests that in the German system, where data transfer is highly inefficient and mostly done by fax, practitioners will be challenged to integrate the data from these tools into patient records and, as a result, integrate the tools themselves into patient care. I note that electronic health record systems can pretty much eliminate this issue, but that someone needs to pay for developing them. In the U.S., this came with Obamacare. Outside the U.S., I'm not sure where it's come or how successfully. Along with in-person meetings, your joining the podcast was our single biggest change this year. It was fascinating to me to compare where Nashville was when he joined back in April to what we all are thinking just seven months later. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. When you're done, join the conversation in our LinkedIn discussion group. Louise, one of the things I'm inferring from your comment and Jorn's as well, but yours a little more, is that this will wind up, in essence, opening the door a crack so that you can develop data that can open the aperture a whole bunch wider in the way that Jorn was talking about. Does that sound right?
1: Louise Campbell. Yeah, that's what it sounds like to me because previously we've only ever seen fibroscan as kilopascals because from hepatology that's all we're interested in. We want to know you've got a soft or hard liver to find another test. But an abnormal fibro scan is an abnormal liver function test. For me it should go on the pathway of any other abnormal liver function test. But that could be fat we've always previously discharged those patients because we only have kilopascals on a large number of machines around the world. So I did a a catch-up list in the NHS and 80% of everybody had soft livers that went back to primary care but had high fat which we were previously missing. So now if we can track those we may well be able to correlate in a stronger way the metabolic conditions that these patients have. I don't know whether Jean would be better placed to do that but this, or where I see in my specialist care practice in the NHS before, was the more cirrhosis you got and the higher along the scale, the more metabolic conditions you had associated as you progressed along the pathway So type 2 diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, and cirrhosis as you were getting there. But that was just my general feel and some basic data that I'd broken down then. Jörn Schottenberg.
2: On the other side, Luis, you could say, well, everybody has it. Why should you test for it in the first place? The important message is I think you can offer some something to these patients that's very cheap and that is self-motivated change, which comes at no cost for the healthcare system, but should carry on to beneficial in reducing spending for metabolic complications, and that could be a cardiovascular event or a liver event, but clearly a lot of years down the line. So I think it's important if we test something that we link it to an intervention, and here for me, the intervention is through education and then self-empowered or self-determined change.
1: Oh, absolutely. Every one of the people that we have scanned here had forgotten the entire reason that people alter diet and that the liver was involved at all in the dietary process. So it's not a diet for the heart. It's a diet that changes the liver that helps the heart. It's not a diet for diabetes. It's a diet that changes the gut and their liver health to change your parameters of diabetes. But it's not until you discuss how food is processed through the body that people even remember that the liver is a metabolic organ and part of the process. And then they go, well, why don't people talk about it? I had the privilege to go to an Aboriginal health conference, which was one of the reasons I was here and spoke to people. And they have some of the best documentation I have seen on portions and dietetic control. And it's beautiful. Although the protein is kangaroo and turtle which our protein, might be chicken and other meat sources. But it was a beautiful document, but not once when they changed the entire diet was liver mentioned. It was amazing. And they hadn't even thought about it. So again, these beautiful documents written in multiple Aboriginal languages are there. And it would be great to see them adapted to focus on that. But we're a little way off there, but it it was a fantastic meeting and such an eye opener into a completely different cultural process.
0: At the risk of asking a question that's going to trouble certain more sensitive people in the audience. What is the difference in terms of protein composition or makeup between kangaroo and turtle on the one hand and chicken and beef on the other? Is there any?
1: I think you'd have to ask Shearer to come back and do that one. It was just their sources of protein rather than burgers. But it is beautifully done, even to the shape of the hands for cups, the fist size for portion size. If anybody wants to look at it, it's Diabetes WA. They've done a, a brilliant set of um, documentation and a story about... Uh, I think I I can't think it's an iguana or Larry something or other, but they've done some great stuff. I think the other thing is Aboriginal history is a predominantly speaking language. So they talk about yarning and there are some great reference documents by Professor Basara on clinical yarning and research yarning to be able to talk and find out the issues because it is such a different. And I am fairly sure a lot of First Nation populations would not have been a speaking language or a written language. I don't know about the Red Indians. I don't know about the Inuits in Canada, but a lot of First Nations probably all come from the yarning type. So that opened up a whole load of ability to just talk through cultural aspects, which I will go and read, but it was a fascinating conference. The way
2: it's viewed in my healthcare system, this is an ultrasound procedure. As Louise mentioned, it's been viewed as a radiological procedure. It's an ultrasound procedure, which internal medicine physicians are offered or reimbursed for, but not at a cost that it would account for the expenses of the fibroscan. I think in different systems, we see an adaptation of potentially different ways to offer these types of exams instead of having to purchase machines, purchasing single exams or something like this could be one way around this. And then in most cases, if the expenses are over the amount, the healthcare providers would reimburse that there's a certain out-of-pocket for the patient. That's the other way that I could see this. But um, we're not going to see it broadly adapted as a reimbursable test through the general healthcare system, I believe, for some time.
1: No, but I think you will see it come down in cost. For example, we just do fiber scan as you know. But for the NHS. NHS, for example, if you were to purchase 3,000 scans, that's £45 a scan. You can put them anywhere through your region. If you're a big CCG, you can put 10 into one primary care, 20 to in another. It is there to drive down the costs. That's what it potentially opens. But it is also about the skill set. In the UK, it is a regulated activity because it has ultrasound. In Australia, it is not regulated. So I would be looking to get it regulated in all countries because it is a point of care device that comes with information and therefore it is about quality. It is not about just buying machines. We have all of those. We keep all of those and the staff. So you just pop in, you do a scan, you come out again. But it is a different model, which healthcare currently in lots of areas around the world are just not fixed up to do. It's simply too complicated if you make it a process through healthcare for reimbursement. If
0: part of the benefit, as both of you describe it, and as Louise just described over and over again throughout the years we've been doing this, is in the ability to educate patients, then... How readily does this lend itself to other things that are patient self-empowering? Digital apps, for example, different kinds of remote access so that patients can, once motivated, can follow up properly without having to have quite as much contact with the healthcare system. Does does that work? And how, how, how might that set up?
1: I think it works. It's what we do. And I have multiple clients who get a scan every few months to just maintain their liver fat, not their liver fibrosis. They want to know that they are not going into the risk categories or they've come down specifically in the risk. Categories, and we have people remove their liver fat over a few weeks depending on what they change in their diet, to just slowly over several months. I don't necessarily think scales are particularly motivating. If you lose the weight of your hips but not your liver, then you don't really change much of your metabolic process. Shira was saying that as well. It is the motivating aspect of seeing a minor change in your diet make a major change potentially metabolically. But we do need to get the data on that. We do need to track it, but we do see heart rates come down. You do see blood. Blood pressures reduce, and they can track them through different apps. Our app in the in London eventually launches tomorrow. You must have known for cycle there, and then in Australia next year. But it's not meant to replace; it's meant to enhance. You can do blood pressures online. You can do all sorts. But where we keep it pigeonhole is very much specialist care for hepatology. And that scares most primary care physicians. It is not. For me, FibroScan or any of these tools that could be point of care are for people with a liver at risk, not liver disease. Because most people with a liver at risk will never get liver disease. They may get motobelic disease. You look at Tracy Simon's work or Hannes Hagstrom's work. We know that data. We seem to want to produce it in a different world. So for me, it's about a liver that's unhealthy, that puts somebody at risk, not less. But then we can find liver disease. The earlier we find it, and Australia is the growing capital of liver cancer in the world. So I think a lot of the episodes this year have, and last year, moved into this more liver health is public health, which is, I know, GLI's process. But for me, liver health, public health is also workers' health and last year's easel lancet and i think Jean, you were a, an author on this with liver disease now being the second leading cause of worsening large lost if you add that to metabolic health we are talking about one of the major areas that could be the biggest turnaround in public health in the future if we start to look at it measure it motivate in the real world rather than just at the end stage where liver disease becomes your only default because we don't scream for liver health well oh, clearly if liver
2: disease has developed, it's much more difficult to cure and address it. So by all means, and I think we said this previously, it's important to, to prevent this. I understood some of the question you had, Roger, was around, you know, also app use and kind of automated scheduling or moving healthcare system to the next level. And I think in many areas that I'm aware, albeit we have the technology, it's not quite there and it's related to the slowness of the systems. That means we'd have to install computer systems across different practices, hospitals, linking payers. So I think that's still quite some time out. But moving it to a more holistic level and and linking data, if it's feasible through data protection concerns, uh, that would clearly um, also be a big step forward to provide all the data. And I saw a patient today, again, he said, you know, these are my tests. The other doctor says there's something wrong with the test. And I say, well, which tests? I don't have it. Then you go looking for the paper uh, and it's in in a fax machine somewhere and it's in an office and the door is closed. And it's like, this feels so backward, uh, these days. Um, But it's still reality in many practices.
0: In the U.S., what changed that was that the credentialing organizations started to give a lot of credit for EHR, and you could get money from the government to put it in electronic health records. Before that, we had exactly the same challenge that you're talking about. But now I think it's somewhat better here, at least.
2: And now back to Roger.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with the next piece of our year-end review, this time including interviews with Scott Friedman and Donna Cryer, among others. You'll want to hear it. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.